If you are like me, you may have been disregarding CIMT as a specialized intervention for specialized OTs in some far away specialty clinic. But trust me, no matter what population you work with, you should be following this research. CIMT is perhaps the most studied OT intervention, and it can teach all of us valuable lessons about neuroplasticity, intensity, and I think the future of OT in general. Today, we are going to be diving into a prestigious Cochrane review on CIMT. And after we review this article, I'm so excited to welcome to the podcast, Dr. Katherine Hoyt, PhD, OTD, OTRL. Her and I are going to discuss this research and how you can leverage the principles behind this intervention in your OT practice. So let's dive in. Welcome to the OT Potential Podcast, where we review new and influential OT journal articles, then invite on an expert guest to help us pull out actionable takeaways that you can implement in your practice starting today. Welcome to the podcast. I'm your host, Sarah Lyon, OTRL. And before we dive into CIMT and OT, I wanted to let you know that this podcast may qualify as continuing education for you. To earn CEU credit, you will need to be a member of the OT Potential Club, our OT evidence-based practice platform. To gain CEU credit, all you have to do is head into the club after listening to this and take a five-question test to earn a certificate for your time today. So bearing in mind that this podcast could count as a CEU course, I wanted to state our two learning objectives so you can be thinking about them throughout the podcast today. Our first learning objective is that you will be able to identify the mechanisms behind CIMT. And our second is that you will be able to describe ways the principles of CIMT can be incorporated into traditional therapy practices. So let's begin by looking at our journal article, and then we'll bring on Catherine to discuss how this research can play out in your practice. The article that we are reviewing today is called Constraint-Induced Movement Therapy in Children with Unilateral Cerebral Palsy. It comes to us from the journal Cochrane Database of Systematic Reviews. It was published in 2019, and it is ranked 78th on our list of the 100 most influential OT journal articles. So this journal article clocks in at 277 pages. It is a Cochrane review, meaning that it is at the very tip top of our evidence pyramid. It is always fun to look at Cochrane reviews because they are just some of the most thorough research that we get to discuss here in the club. As far as the intro to the article, we recently discussed cerebral palsy on another podcast with Dr. Iona Novak. So I'm going to skip the information on cerebral palsy in general and go straight into the info that they provide on CIMT. So constraint-induced movement therapy, or CIMT, is actually simpler than you may think. It has two key components. One, the restraint of the less affected limb and two, intensive structured upper limb therapy. So it can just be boiled down into those two things, but within these two key components, there is just a lot of variation in how it is carried out. For example, the types of restraints that are used in studies have really varied, and they vary from splints, mitts or gloves, slings or casts. And also, the duration of the restraint ranges widely from one hour per day to up to 24 hours per day. 
And the intervention has been studied with individuals as well as in groups and carried out in the home, clinic, inpatient, and camp settings. So that's kind of an intro to CIMT and the variation behind it. But how does this intervention work? What are the mechanisms behind it? So when used to treat children with cerebral palsy, there are two main mechanisms that we believe lead to positive results. The first mechanism is overcoming development disregard. This is a learned underutilization of the affected limb in favor of the stronger limb. The second mechanism is activating activity-dependent cortical reorganization. And this is that activity-dependent neuroplasticity that we've learned to look for in our green light pediatric OT interventions. So that's kind of the big picture intro, but why was this specific article written? So while there is increasing clarity around the effectiveness of CIMT, there are also lingering questions about the most effective format for this intervention. So the authors sought to update a 2007 Cochrane Review, and their goal was, quote, to evaluate the effect of CIMT in the treatment of the more affected limb in children with unilateral cerebral palsy. So that is obviously a big sweeping goal, hence our 277 pages. But what were their methods for carrying out this study? The authors looked for randomized controlled trials, cluster RCTs, and clinically controlled trials that compared different versions of CIMT to another treatment. To be included in this review, the study's participants had to be diagnosed with CP and aged from birth to 19 years old. The authors paid close attention to the dosage of CIMT, and they calculated the total hours of treatment using the following formula. So to get the total hours, they added therapist-led intervention, plus the time spent on parent-led intervention, plus time spent on any other intervention, and then plus forced use of the upper limb when that restraint was still on. The outcome measures that were utilized in the study were only included in the author's analysis if the measure had a reported reliability and validity for CP. There are almost 50 outcome measures that they listed, and they're all highly relevant to OT. I'm going to go ahead and list these in the club and link to them in our assessment search. But for our purposes here on the podcast, I'm just going to tell you that they grouped these outcome measures into 10 different areas, and those were bimanual measures, unimanual, manual ability, individualized measures of performance, self-care, body function, participation, quality of life, parenting and family measures, and then other. So what were the results of their study? The authors found 36 trials with a total of 1,264 participants. Starting with the dosage of CIMT that they found in the studies, the mean total amount of CIMT provided was 129 hours. On average, 56 hours of the CIMT was provided by a therapist, and the average length of a CIMT program was four weeks. So assuming that participants receive therapy five days per week, that would amount to three hours of therapy per day for five days over four weeks. The models of practice they found to guide that provision of therapy were 12 studies reported using motor learning as a model of practice and 11 studies reported using shaping. So what were the effects of the interventions that they found? 
There is a lot of nuance that they pulled out here, but very broadly, they group their results into two main categories. The first being when CIMT was compared to a low-dose comparison like low-dose OT. So they found that there was low-quality evidence that CIMT was more effective than a low-dose comparison at improving bimanual performance, specifically per the assisting hand assessment, and that CIMT was also more effective than a low-dose comparison for improving unimanual capacity per the quest. And the average dose of this low-dose comparison was 7.9 hours. The second broad category they looked at was CIMT versus another high-dose or dose-matched comparison. So if there's 56 hours of CIMT being provided by a therapist, the comparison also had about that same amount. And they found that CIMT was not more effective than other high-dose comparisons or comparisons where dosage was the same. Basically, the patients saw similar amounts of improvements in this comparison. So what were the author's conclusions and discussion? This review found weak evidence that compared with a low-intensity intervention, CIMT is more effective at improving bimanual performance and unimanual capacity. However, it is no more effective than another intervention that is carried out intensively. Therefore, the author said the outcomes of this study support the implementation of a well-defined, time-limited, goal-directed block of CIMT or bimanual therapy. They noted that it is important for clinicians to recognize that CIMT does not appear to result in improvement at the body structure level, for example, by improving grip strength, muscle stiffness, or spasticity. And furthermore, evidence around improvement in participation and quality of life is still lacking at this point. The authors gave some great suggestions about discussing the results of this review with family members. They said it is important that families and children understand the outcomes of this review. CIMT does appear to be safe as an optional green light intervention for children with cerebral palsy. But that being said, families should understand several things about it. First, the specific nature of the benefit. The benefit that we see right now is really around hand function, both by manual and unimanual. They should understand the magnitude of the benefit. Lots of times the usual care therapies at the lower dose had some benefit, but CAMT just had more. Families should understand the availability of other high dosage options that also have good evidence behind them. They should understand the uncertainty of how long-term the benefits are. That was definitely something that was understudied. They should understand the need to continue to monitor upper extremity function and occupational performance as another round of high-intensity treatment or other alternative may become necessary. And finally, it's important to understand that not all children respond to CIMT, and this is definitely an area for future study who are the kids who have the most potential to benefit from this treatment. There is just so much to unpack and think about from this research. So it is my honor to be bringing to the podcast Dr. Catherine Hoyt. Dr. Hoyt is an early intervention occupational therapist and an instructor at Washington University School of Medicine. She earned her doctorate in occupational therapy in 2010 and her PhD in rehabilitation and participation science in 2017 from Washington University in St. Louis. 
As a clinician, Dr. Hoyt recognizes the gaps in assessment, particularly for early identification of disability among children with sickle cell disease and the real and devastating impact delayed identification of disability can have on long-term outcomes for children. This led to her participation in the development of the infant-toddler activity card sort. Catherine is also a scholar in the Mentored Training and Implementation Science K-12 training program, and she currently serves as a co-primary investigator at one site for the I Acquire trial of constraint-induced movement therapy for children who are 8 to 36 months of age. So without further ado, I will patch Catherine into our podcast. Welcome to the podcast, Catherine. It's great to have you. Thank you for having me, Sarah. I am so excited to be talking about this topic today because it gets at this question of how much therapy is needed. And I love that about CIMT because you guys really have the opportunity to dig into intensity, which I think is something we all think about, but you guys have the opportunity to study. And I'm especially happy to be talking to you as someone who's a researcher, but also I feel like you're really grounded in everyday practice as well. Oh, thank you. Yeah. But to get us going, I really wanted to hear a little bit about your story and start with just how you first found OT. Sure. Well, it's a it's a little bit of a roundabout story. I think everybody's is actually. I love hearing people's stories, how they found occupational therapy. The way that I found OT was because both of my parents were foster parents uh, to newborns and infants straight coming from the hospital. And I had the opportunity as a young child to observe early intervention in my home with siblings that were living with me and observe the impact, really the the impact that early intervention could have on small children. And it was an occupational therapist. I didn't know this at the time, though, that would include me in the therapy too with the children. And we had this one little baby a little girl named Lakeisha, and the occupational therapist told my mom that she needed to be able to bring her hands together in midline, and that was an important thing for her to be able to do, so like learning how to clap. And she told me to practice with her in the car, and we had a lot of time in the back of the car together. And so in just a few short weeks with you know many hours in the car, commuting to and from school and stuff, she learned how to clap. And I knew that I wanted to be a therapist from there on out, a pediatric therapist doing early intervention. But I thought I wanted to be a physical therapist, but that was because I hadn't heard about OT. And it wasn't until I got to college that a professor of mine was familiar with the field and suggested it to me. Wow. Oh, what an incredible story that literally, I think, warmed my heart to think about that OT who was involving you in the therapy and probably didn't even have the research that we have now behind that of involving the family members, but just saw that that was something that worked. And I think that is indicative of just where we are at with OT, where we now have so much research that is backing up what we've been doing for years and decades. And I love how your story showcases that. So that's how you found pediatric OT. How did you get interested in the research side of it? Well, I was fortunate to go to an OT program that had a lot of exposure to research. So while I was pursuing my clinical degree, I had the opportunity to work with my still current mentor, actually, Dr. Allison King, 
I got connected to her because I knew that I wanted to work in pediatrics. I knew I wanted to work in communities where children are not necessarily having the same access to early intervention services as in other communities. And Allison King's primary research is with young children with sickle cell disease. And in the United States, individuals with sickle cell disease are predominantly identify as Black or African American and are at a high risk for stroke. That's the correlation with constraint. Mm. But I had the opportunity to work with her. And after a few years of working with her and then working as an early intervention occupational therapist, I had ideas for how we could improve it. I saw where evidence-based practice wasn't reaching the community And it turns out that in order to make that happen, you have to have the research to back all of it up, even for the methods for getting it out into the community. And so my motivation for going into research was really to support the field of occupational therapy so that our practices could be more accessible and usable by by everybody that could benefit. Hmm. Yeah, that definitely aligns with what I know of you. And I think that's something that's exciting about CIMT right now too, is we have this robust evidence base behind it. And it's interesting to think about this next broader step of implementation of getting it to more people. I wanted to ask, too, just about your professional experience using CIMT and kind of how that's intertwined. You touched on that a little bit, but tell us a little bit more about how that's intertwined. Sure. So I think I had heard about constraint-induced movement therapy or CIMT while I was an OT student, but I hadn't had the opportunity to really learn too much about how to implement it. So it wasn't until my level two experiences, my first level two experience, I had the opportunity to practice constraint-induced movement therapy with a four-year-old in the home with a provider that had learned the skills to do CIMT and then was doing that through her private practice. So from that, I was interested because I saw how beneficial and intensive intervention could be for a child and for a family and that it was totally possible for an OT to do this. This was something that that I was capable of doing. And then on my second level two training, I was at Kennedy Krieger Institute with Teresa Garcia-Rady, who, if anybody takes a look at the AOTA handbook on constraint-induced movement therapy, Teresa is one of the authors in there. Mm. And at Kennedy Krieger Institute, they do, or at that time, they did a small camp format for adolescents getting constraint-induced movement therapy. And I got even more intensive practice there than learning how to do it, how to assess pre-post outcomes and talking to older children or adolescents, really young adults, that were going through the process of CIMT and the impact that it had on them and their lives. And I think hearing from people that had the ability to communicate the impact that that intervention had was really meaningful for me. Hmm. So then after that, I continued to learn about constraint, was interested in constraint, and eventually pursued working in a lab with a PI Nico Dosenbach, who is looking at pre-post outcomes of individuals, of all children, participating in a constraint-induced movement therapy program and pursued more intensive training for myself on constraint-induced movement therapy, and then also learning how to use all the assessments that are used specifically for children with cerebral palsy or with hemiplegic cerebral palsy so that I'd be able to assess those outcomes more efficiently. 
Currently, I am a site co-PI for a multi-site study. Currently, there's 14 sites, I believe, in the iAcquire trial, which is looking at testing the different dosages of constraint-induced movement therapy in young children, 8 to 36 months. So that's looking at the three hours of constraint-induced movement therapy compared to six hours compared to usual and customary care. There's like a billion questions I want to ask about that journey, but I think the main (laughs) thing I want to ask is, at the beginning, do you feel like you got just lucky having that early exposure to CIMT? Like I now look back at that as being really lucky. I wish that I had had that in my career. Or do you feel like that was just the natural trajectory of your interest? Do most people with your interests get that kind of exposure? I mean, I think there's a little bit of a mix. Mm -hmm. There was some luck in being exposed to it on my first level too, and having a a CI that was interested in applying evidence-based practices that aren't necessarily available everywhere. So I think that was a little bit of luck. But I think after that, what I would recommend even to others is just communicating and talking out loud about the things that you're interested in and the things that you think are cool. For example, the PI principal investigator that I started working with, Nico Dosenbach, the reason that that came about was because I randomly was talking about how cool I thought CIMT was with some Hmm. friends. And a friend of mine knew that there was another PI who was looking for an OT type research coordinator, somebody that could do assessments for an an upcoming study. And that only happened because I was kind of randomly like, oh man, this intervention's really cool. I wish I could do something with it. So a little bit of luck and a little bit of networking, I suppose. Yeah. Yeah. I think that's almost like a common thread of like a I don't know what word to use other than like a secret sauce to people who really grow in their expertise quickly is just talking about their interests and networking and starting that really early on. I definitely look back at OT school and I wish that I had done that more. And I feel like I'm just now really learning that. Okay, so that's how you got here. I want to turn to this massive research article. I actually (laughs) loved reading it. Did you like it? What did you think of this article? It was really long, yeah. <laughs> I'll be honest. <laughs> but I was happy to read through it because, it, as you did summarize, it is the best level of evidence that we can review. I thought it was interesting comparing that review with some of the individual studies, even you know ones that you've been speaking about recently on the podcast about cerebral palsy. And, you know, some of the studies that I'm involved with related to Mm -hmm. iAcquire and Baby Champ and stuff. Yeah. I thought that was kind of interesting. Yeah, it felt like a nice trend to talk about. Earlier, we just talked about pediatric OT interventions on the podcast and then CP and CIMT was such a big part of those studies. So it was fun to be able to dive into that. I wanted to ask, one of the first things when people read a Cochrane review related to OT, they usually feel deflated because (laughs) the evidence level is usually like low to very low. As a researcher, how do you read that? And how does that strike you? I have to say I'm in that boat that when I was reading it and I saw the low to very low, it does make me sad too. (laughs) But I think... (laughs) But I think to me as a researcher, what it means is that we need to think about how we're evaluating studies even. So like there's risk of bias tools that are used to evaluate research studies, but sometimes there's an inherent 
bias because of course a child and family knows if they're getting constraint induced mm-hmm. movement therapy or not. And so how they respond to measures may be different if they know that they're in a usual and customary care group or not. And there's no way to blind for that. Like, Mm -hmm. you know, if you have a cast on or if you don't. (laughs) And so I think because of that inherent level of bias, maybe we need to reconsider how we're describing some of these studies and thinking about that in a different way. So I think that's kind of how I think about it now. I see the low and very low, but then take that with understanding how those low and very lows are calculated. And we should perhaps have that conversation. Yeah. Too. Maybe we need a new way to describe it. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Some of the, just the nature of therapy limits how we can study it. But at the same time, we know that there'll be another Cochrane review coming up and probably on this and five years in SOTs, how can we be intentional about like building the evidence base and what they're looking at? I've come to the point when I read a Cochrane review, if there's low evidence, I just feel like that's Cochrane singing the praises. Like that's like, a, <laughs> like they just have such high standards that even low evidence feels like a compliment from Cochrane. That's actually perhaps a really good way to look at it. <laughs> and maybe what we should be talking about more with everybody is that even a low or very low is still a compliment. It is indicating that there's evidence on this. Yes. Yeah. And it's so hard. The things we're looking at are so complex. So it's a miracle to be able to tease out evidence on something where there's so many factors. And and have yeah. a Cochrane review on it at all. Yes. It like yeah, indicates that there's a lot of publications that there can be a review, a mm-hmm. Cochrane review. Yeah. So even people, if people read it and they're initially deflated, there's a lot of good news underlying that for sure. I wanted to ask you to, early on in the podcast, kind of to set the stage, this review looked at research that was done since 2018. From your perspective, is there any like seminal research that's been done that builds on this or that OTs should know about anything that the Cochrane Review missed? I can't remember what year the Baby Champ study was published, but I think that was 2020. Yeah, I was thinking of that too. Yeah, so I think that I would recommend beyond this review since 2018, looking at some of the studies out of Baby Champ and iAcquire. The iAcquire study is ongoing, so those publications aren't out yet. But Baby Champ was recently published, and I would review that study. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that was one of the things in the Cochrane Review is it encouraged researchers to look at the degree to which age matters. And yeah, could you speak to that a little bit more about CIMT with littles? What are we learning there? Well, I think that's actually, and it was one of the articles you included was one of the ones from my group about early neuroplasticity. And I think what we are getting to know more and more in the research is that early neuroplasticity exists and it is an important time to intervene. Mm -hmm. So there are a few studies that have looked at intensive interventions in zero to three-year-olds. And that is what the iAcquire study is currently looking at, as I said, looking at different intensities with those early age groups. I have an inkling that earlier intervention as an early intervention occupational therapist matters 
and that mm-hmm. we should be providing interventions, particularly intensive interventions intended to redesign how, your brain at the earliest possible opportunity. We know that the brain is growing at its fastest rate in those first three years. So I suspect that earlier is better. Mm-hmm. I hope yeah, that answers your question. Yeah, yeah. I think <laughs> feel like I just went off on my own <laughs> tangent to what I wanted to say. <laughs> yeah. No, I think that's um, such an exciting part of this research and fits really well with our understanding of the principles of neuroplasticity in general, that age does seem to make a difference. And what I like about CIMT is it just fits so well with how we understand neuroplasticity overall. And I wondered if we could just like take a moment to speak to that, like the mechanisms of CIMT. Why do you think it works? What's your understanding there? I know there's not precise exact answers to that, but in general, what's your understanding? My understanding, or I guess I believe constraint-induced movement therapy is so effective because of the combination of limiting the child's use of their stronger upper extremity. So they're really forced to use the more affected upper extremity or, or arm and hand. So the combination of constraint with the intensity, I do think that that seems to matter and the evidence seems clear across studies that intensity matters. And it's not just the constraint that is doing it. It is the combination of the constraint and the intensity of therapy hours. Mm -hmm. The therapist makes a really big difference. And the reason the therapist makes such a big difference is because they're there specifically coaching the child and using behavioral strategies and shaping so that the child can be successful, which is so OT, right? To think about like, it's not just eating breakfast and we're going to put a child in front of a bowl of cereal with a spoon, but oh, they can't be successful with this spoon. Maybe we need to modify the spoon today, or maybe we need to modify the cereal or the bowl, or maybe we're not at cereal yet. Maybe we need to be doing graham crackers for the first few days, depending on their level of grasp and, you know, attention and food preferences and, you know, all of the different things that we're considering as we're modifying a skill and refining it over time. So I think it's the combination really of the the therapist intensity and the constraint and really having it for a long a longer period of time. You know, even the evidence for building habits talks about you're not going to build a new habit of going for a walk every morning in one day or if you do that a couple of times it's really going to take intensive practice over time to build and sustain a new habit. And if you think about using a hand that has maybe been disregarded or neglected or a child maybe doesn't even perceive as a part of their body completely, it's going to take some time for them to integrate that into their perception of themselves and what they can do in their everyday life. Mm -hmm. I think the pop culture awareness of what it takes to establish a habit is going to help us so much in having these conversations about CIMT. Like you can't form a habit by going on a walk on one day, but if you did that every day for a month, you're getting to somewhere powerful. And I think there's like a growing awareness just from popular science that is teaching us that. And that fits so well with CIMT. What I like about CIMT too is how it provides all these opportunities for real life practice 
some of the other ways that have been tried to get high intensity are like robotic therapy where you practice mm-hmm. over and over, but those so limit your real life practice. And what I like about CMT is you can do it in the clinic, but you can also wear that split home and do it with the parents for a little bit. And it's not the same, but at least you're getting that translation of skill. And lots of the studies looked at having part of the time be parent-led as well, too. Absolutely. As a, you know, I, I feel very strongly about family-centered services and families and all caregivers that are a part of a child's life are really the ones designing their opportunities and experiences that they have every day. That without that, I feel like we're missing a huge opportunity for children to thrive. You know, it's beyond even doing the constraint. They're going to be home with their family all the time. And Mm -hmm. if there's somebody that can encourage them to use that more affected hand, or maybe you select specific activities that you do with righty or with lefty, like opening doors, or maybe you eat every snack with that hand, or maybe, you know, I think therapists have creative ways to looking at a child's everyday life, like, okay, they have a door that you can push and Lefty can always be responsible for pushing open that door, or maybe Lefty holds onto a railing going up the stairs, or holds a cup, or holds the paper down while the other hand colors. Just ways that both hands can be incorporated in their everyday life tasks Mm -hmm. is so important. Yeah, you want to set up the situation where the little Catherines of the world, the little siblings, (laughs) can also be helping (laughs) I would have loved that, honestly, especially if it was like a messy play, I would have been all over it. (laughs) So yeah, CIMT is so exciting. The research behind it is really compelling. It's one of the most studied OT interventions. But as I saw this topic coming up, my initial reaction to CIMT is always... That is a very, very specialized intervention that gets done at Cincinnati Children's Hospital. It doesn't get done here in Aurora, Nebraska. Is that an accurate perception of where it's at right now? Is that how we should be thinking about it? What are your thoughts there? I think that that is something we need to change. And I think, unfortunately, what we've seen historically with research and with evidence is that it can take 17, 18 years to translate into practice. And that is what we're seeing with constraint. And I think part of the reason is because it feels a little intimidating, especially if when we're talking about a model of service that doesn't necessarily align with how insurance is reimbursing or like current models for how therapy is provided. Often, you know, we'll see in in most clinics, in outpatient clinics and in early intervention, that therapy is typically provided one hour at a time. And those higher intensity therapies, even when there's evidence behind them, and there's other therapies apart from constraint with a high level of evidence, or maybe I shouldn't say that because we're talking about a Cochrane review. There's other therapies (laughs) outside of constraint-induced movement therapy that are high intensity that have a lot of evidence supporting them. But they're difficult for us to implement because of our kind of one hour per week model of providing services. I think that that's kind of where the barrier is, is that we are maybe telling students about constraint-induced movement therapy, but not actually how to do it. And so I think that's the next step for research, actually, in an area that I'm interested in pursuing 
currently? How do we disseminate and implement constrained-use movement therapy so that more children who could benefit from it will have the opportunity to access it? I think the other things we need to be thinking about, like this review talked about, and, and the Baby Champ article actually too, is what are the different components of constraint-induced movement therapy. And that's been a challenge, I think, in researching and implementing it too, because you'll see around the country many different models of pediatric constraint-induced mm-hmm. movement therapy being applied. There are models of pediatric constraint-induced movement therapy where children are participating in a camp format, where it's like many children going together. Or there'll be some children that are casted in a full-arm cast. Maybe some children are in a half-arm cast or using a mitt. And those can vary whether they're wearing them 24 hours a day or whether they're wearing them just during therapy and things like that. So these types of variations in intensity and type of constraint and level of therapist oversight varies a lot. And I think that makes it increasingly difficult to translate into practice when there's kind of questions about how do I do it? What is the best way to do it? How do I constrain the arm? So I think about those types of things when I think about this being difficult to translate. And I think Mm -hmm. some of those questions have to be answered. And we need to be thinking about it in a broader way, I think, too. Like, we need to be asking everybody, like, how can we make this evidence-based intervention more implementable? From families' perspectives, what would make this more implementable? Would this be easier if it were done at the home? Would it be easier if it were, you know, done at a hospital? What about the type of constraint? And then we need to be asking probably educators and clinic managers too, how do we get this reimbursed? How do we get students excited about a career as perhaps a constraint-induced movement therapy therapist? Maybe Mm -hmm. that's your area of focus, like we have hand therapists or early intervention therapists. And I think thinking in different ways from all of those different perspectives of people that are influencing whether this intervention gets provided or not. Children seem to really benefit from the therapy and don't complain about it. Families seem to also really like it and want it and seek out the therapy. But what could make it easier? What could make it more accessible? And then I think really from that therapist end, what do therapists need to actually be able to do it? Do they Mm -hmm. need their therapy managers to support it? Do they need skills in casting? Do they need one-on-one training or just a webinar? I'm not super sure. Mm-hmm. I don't, yeah. do you know? <laughs> <laughs> oh, I was, my my brain is going like, oh, we're still trying to figure out the minimal viable product. Like what's the easiest mm-hmm. way to do this? True. And what I'm thinking is, oh, I can't wait for Catherine to figure that out for us and then <laughs> tell us. Or for the research in general, too. We know it works. Now we need to know the minimal viable product. And then we need as many therapists to be doing that as possible. And not just around here in the United States, but around the globe. In the meantime, while we don't know this minimal viable product, while trainings for CIMT are still more scarce than they should be, something that really intrigued me, this was a past conversation with Michelle on the podcast where she was talking about her desire to just move to a more intensive therapy model, even Mm -hmm. within our traditional reimbursement models, instead of spreading something out over 12 weeks, she saw the benefit from being more intensive, like over a month, which really aligns with CIMT and aligns Mm -hmm. with other therapy interventions that have that high, more high evidence. Do you think that's 
a good first step for a lot of us just to be looking at our numbers of hours and trying to make them as intense as possible? Or what do you think of that? I 100% agree with that. I think there is a lot of evidence behind that. And I think if you talk to families and children too, or reflect on yourself, like, I don't really want to go to therapy for the rest of my life. But if we can identify a goal that we're going to work on, and I'm going to achieve it, and then maybe take a break for a bit, and Mm -hmm. then identify a new goal, similar even to co-op, which has a ton of evidence behind it too. And interventions for other diagnoses too have seen similar things. Doing an intensive, like we are going to identify what we want to be doing and what we want to achieve out of this. And we're going to work really hard at it for a month, which is about that time of forming a habit. Yep. And then we're going to take a break and let you integrate that and generalize it into your everyday life. Practice it for a little while. And then maybe touch base a couple months later or a few months later, you know, whatever that time period is. I think that would be amazing if we could change that kind of thought process with therapy and the provision of rehabilitation services. I think it's complicated, though, because of how the payer model works in the United States and how therapy services are even determined. In early intervention, the system is basically putting it in there as once a week or twice a month or something. There isn't Mm -hmm. an easy model, and it takes some convincing to get everybody on board with a more intensive model. Even families may feel that that is burdensome or a lot. You know, they maybe they don't want me there three times a week for a month. That's a lot. So I think it requires a bit of explaining and providing some context for why do I want to do it this way to everybody? Because it isn't how we've traditionally looked at rehabilitation in the recent past. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it seems like a shift we can start taking baby steps for. And that definitely feels like that's the future that we're headed towards and to start thinking in that way. And I don't know, it seems like an exciting future where it's good for the therapists, it's good for the families, it's the most effective. So I definitely look forward to seeing more research come out in this area. And yeah, we'll be curious to see if that is ultimately the direction that we head. I kind of hope so. Even thinking about it, you know, it gets me excited even for families and children that they would have the opportunity to explore different types of therapies if they're doing short bursts of intensive things and different therapists. And like, you never know what's going to happen with different people. Maybe you'll find that one excellent therapist that you want to stick with. And, but maybe you'll find a new therapist that provides Mm -hmm. a different type of service or approach that it really helps. Yeah. And even if you do find that one therapist, this to me opens the opportunity to go back to that therapist in a year. And I think that's something, you know, you do an intensive June or whatever. And then again, in the summer, you go back with a new goal. You're at a new age and I can just feel that. And keeps everybody excited about it too. Yeah. I think it's a win-win I just am excited about it. Me Me too. I hope that's where we go. I think it is where we're going to potentially. I hope so, because I I do think that intensive therapies offer so much for everybody. It can really lead to better outcomes. So if we can get everybody on board. Yeah. So that's kind of thinking about fitting this research into our traditional practices. I also wanted to be sure to ask you specifically if someone's listening and they're like, I want to get involved in CIMT through formalized training. Right before this, I did a Google search and it honestly is not 
obvious how to get involved, what trainings. I feel like I saw like one training that happens once a year somewhere. Where would you recommend people start? Do you have any special insider insight there for us? I can try. (laughs) I think for people that are interested in getting started, honestly, I would look around to see if anybody in your area is providing it. If not, I think the people that are providing it are excited to share it. So go ahead and send an email, reach out on social media to me or to anybody else, really. And I do think the trainings for constraint are limited at the time. Mm -hmm. And that is challenging. But I think reach out to current therapists is probably the best advice. Look for opportunities to learn. If you have the chance to shadow, that can be great. There's actually a lot of videos on YouTube as well on constraint-induced movement therapy and videos of therapists working with individuals doing constraint. The major portions really align with OT. So I think that a lot of people listening probably have a lot of the skills to do constraint-induced movement therapy. There's maybe just some guidance that could be provided on doing the shaping and ensuring that you're getting the intensity and then thinking about the type of constraint that you're providing Mm -hmm. to children. But I do think, you know, my very first experience that I mentioned at the beginning of the podcast was on a level two and a provider that read a lot about constraint, read the research articles, and then provided it. Mm -hmm. So I think, you know, reading the research, connecting with others that are doing it, figuring out how you're going to do that constraint, and then uh, go for it. Yeah, it definitely seems like the information's out there. You might just have to work a little harder than you should to piece it together for your individual. Hopefully that'll get easier in the future, though. Yes. Give me a few years. (laughs) (laughs) It's coming. (laughs) Oh, One of the big last questions I wanted to ask you about the article is I really loved the they gave advice for talking to parents at the very end letting parents know that it's safe, letting them know CIMT doesn't work for everyone, talking to parents about the magnitude of benefit. And I wanted to ask you, I'm just thinking of my own personal situation, say I have a child with CP who is five years old and I'm wanting him to get the best care possible and I'm thinking about CIMT, but I would have to travel four hours to do that. How would you talk to me about doing that versus just connecting with my local therapist? How would you have that conversation? I think I would talk about doing a combination of and talk to you about the importance of getting that early repetitive intensive practice. So is there a way that we could maybe do a combination or get your local therapist on board? Could we provide a constraint and then maybe do some teletherapy and coaching to guide you through that and doing that at home and making sure that your child is getting all of that repetitive practice that they can get? And I think that that that's what I would want to do so that you would have the opportunity to have the best of both worlds while limiting the burden on your family. There have been some studies that have looked at teletherapy for constraint-induced movement therapy. And so that might be a way that we could, in the future, explore that a little bit better so that we could think about getting it to people in in areas that aren't as accessible to local constraint programs. Because I know people, if they have the financial resources, have traveled the world to get constraint-induced movement therapy. And that's definitely not 
feasible for, for everyone. the majority of people. <laughs> yes. I would say even the majority can't just necessarily travel the world or take a month off of work even to be at home while a therapist is coming to the house, even if you are offering it at home. Mm-hmm. Dr. Novak did such a good job talking about getting really precise about what the child and parents' goals are, and then looking at the different therapies that are available that fit really well with this article, that there are other interventions with green light. What are some goal areas that you think are a really good fit for CIMT that you've seen in your practice? I think that is, it's a little tricky for me to answer because I think about like the first part of your question about the goals should really align with the child and family's priorities and their goal areas. And I cannot endorse that more strongly. I think that all of occupational therapy literature and theory backs that up. When people are motivated to engage in the therapy interventions, when it closely aligns with what they really want to be doing, you're going to have better outcomes. So I strongly endorse that. I do think it's a little tricky because often the goals related to CIMT, because the goals for constraint are often about using that more affected side. And ultimately, the goal may not isn't necessarily to become a proficient handwriter with that more mm-hmm. affected side. It's really to increase the use of that side so that the individual can use both hands in their everyday life to pull up their pants with two hands or to pull open a Ziploc bag or open a can of chips, things like that. It isn't necessarily for that affected side to become the dominant hand or anything like that. Mm -hmm. So I think the goals with constraint align, but you see it come together in those last few days. And in many CIMT protocols, the last few days are by manual and try and integrating the new motor skills that have been developed in the affected upper extremity into bimanual tasks. So I think that's where you really see it. And it's a little difficult to say that a CIMT specific goal for those casted or constrained weeks or days, however the constraint is being done, would be exactly mm-hmm. the goal. But yeah. it, it'll get there. It'll get there. <laughs> yes. Good. I think that's helpful to hear for sure. My final question before we get to our rapid fire is, what do you see on the horizon for CIMT? We've touched on a couple things, but what are you most excited about in the next five years for this intervention? I am most excited for us to have more answers about dosage. So kind of what you were talking about earlier, like the the minimal effective amount. Oh, the minimal viable product. What's the, like the... Yeah. That's a business um, term. <laughs> Yeah, so I'm most excited for learning more about the dosage and then also about the implementation. I'm really excited about the implementation because I think, you know, we can put all of our money and time into identifying effective interventions. But if we don't also put our money and time into Mm -hmm. thinking about how these interventions can be applied in the real world for all people, then, you know, all we've done is create an intervention that can't be widely used, Mm -hmm. which, you know, is important to know, but ultimately isn't making the change and impact in people's lives that I think we're hoping to see in our field. So that's what I'm most excited for is thinking about the implementation. Yeah, for sure. That totally aligns with 
when I started this article, I thought of CIMT as really inaccessible. By the time I was done, I was like, oh, I can see this being widely used. I think the barriers to using it are less than I thought they would, and I can just see it developing where it just becomes such a more accessible intervention. We're at our rapid fire. Are you ready for a couple quick questions? I hope so. (laughs) (laughs) We'll see. (laughs) How do you typically describe occupational therapy, Catherine? When somebody asks me what occupational therapy is, I usually say, are you familiar with physical therapy? Don't hate on me for saying that. (laughs) And and they'll say, yeah, yeah, I've... Yeah, I've heard of physical therapy, and I say, well, occupational therapy is also a rehabilitation profession, and then I usually give an example. So, like, for example, if an adult had a stroke, they're going to go to physical therapy to help them learn how to move and walk and navigate stairs and things like that, and they're going to go to occupational therapy to learn how to do the things that they need to do to be independent at home or that they want to be doing. So maybe that's making a meal or getting dressed or taking a shower. And then I translate it to children because I think it's a little bit more abstract. And they say, but I work with zero to three-year-olds. And so we aren't necessarily working on some of those things, but we are working on the everyday skills that children need to learn to be engaged in their environment and with the people in their lives. So we might be working on play skills. Maybe we're working on dressing or mealtime or socializing with others and then you know, some diagnoses and things that I commonly work with. So that's how I describe OT. Yeah, it's great. And I think it's great to couch us in the (laughs) rehab therapies. That's, yeah, anchors people to what we do for sure. What's one moment that you've had in therapy that you'll never forget? I have a lot of moments that I'll never forget. But actually, a mom just reached out to me yesterday for a child that I saw maybe 10 years ago. And she said, we, we're always thinking of you. And she sent me a story that she remembered from therapy. And I remember it. I will never forget it either. Her little little guy was so energized and ramped up. And we just swung him in a swing for a few minutes as part of therapy to help him calm down. And he fell asleep in this <sighs> like piece of fabric. And there, there's this picture of him on the floor wrapped up like a little burrito, just like drooling out the sides of his mouth. um, So I'll never forget that. I'll never forget teaching that little girl, Lakeisha, how to clap. Mm. The first time she clapped, I'll never forget every single first step I've ever seen. I don't forget the first steps. I don't forget the first bites, like being able to feed themselves. I love firsts, so I guess there's there's a lot of things I won't forget. I love mm. being an early intervention therapist. We get to see so much excitement as children grow, and it's such an honor to be a part of that. Oh, it's such an exciting part of our profession, for sure. What's something you've read recently that's inspired you as an OT? Ooh, that's a good question. I think actually things that have inspired me have been outside of the field of occupational therapy and the field of implementation science. And that's really inspired me to be more engaged in thinking about how research can make evidence more accessible. And Mm -hmm. I didn't even know about that field a few years ago. And so reading the models and theories and approaches of implementation science has been really exciting to me because I think it really aligns with why I became an occupational therapist. Hmm. We'll have to have a super nerdy episode sometime where we talk about implementation science. (laughs) I'd be happy to do that. (laughs) Final question. We've talked about so many things. 
there's a lot for me to chew on from this discussion, but what's the one thought you want to close us on? Evidence-based practice is accessible and doable by all occupational therapists. I think that's what I'm Good. <laughs> that was perfect. Catherine, it's been so much fun talking to you today. Thank you so much for your time and the work that you do. Thank you so much. I really appreciate you having me. Wow, you all, this felt like such an important conversation. I really do think that this research is paving the way for how we will structure the frequency and duration of OT in the future. On our podcast landing page, I am going to link to some CIMT protocols and trainings just to give you a better idea of what this intervention looks like. And also on our brand new OT Near Me directory, I'm going to add a CIMT specialty interest tag where therapists can tag themselves to help patients find CIMT clinicians, but also help OTs who are interested in this practice area to find each other. And as I mentioned at the beginning, if you are looking to earn a certificate for your time today, what you're going to do next is head to otpotential.com where you can sign in or sign up for the OT Potential Club. It is currently only $79 to join and you will have access to all of our courses and the many resources in the club. I love the discussions that happen in there. So definitely if you're not a member, I encourage you to consider joining us. And as always, I want to thank you so much for joining us today. I hope this podcast helps you broaden your knowledge, tweak your practice and stay evidence-based. Take care and we'll talk to you next time.